Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Rosemont's Global Investment Leaders podcast. I'm Brad Mook, Managing Director of Investments at Rosemont, and I'm joined today by the program's usual host, Rosemont CEO, Chaz Burkhart. Welcome, Chaz, and thanks for letting me take the wheel for a bit. Happy to do so, Brad. I think we've got some fun things to talk about. Yes, we thought today we'd discuss some of the topics that we frequently discuss or are asked about, given our role as investors in the industry itself, which really provides us a unique vantage point on what's going on in the investment world. So without further delay, let's jump right in. As investors in the industry, Chaz, um, we are not prolific deal makers. We see a lot of industry activity going on uh, pretty regularly and surprisingly through COVID. And one of the questions we're often asked is our perspective on the deal activity in the industry. And, and I'm curious what you've observed this year in terms of deal activity and how the market dynamics have been changing, both in wealth management and asset management. Yeah, Brad, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, the last few years have been a veritable M&A bonanza. Seems to have been a frenzy to acquire um, any RIA um, by size, region, type, uh, et cetera, by many different types of buyers. But I think one of the things that I, I first have taken away that I feel like everybody wants an iPhone 14. The problem is, is that a lot of people have been buying iPhone 10s or iPhone 6s. And that's not a knock on those businesses. It's recognizing the quality and the excellence of the really good ones. I had an interesting conversation, Brad, with somebody who would be considered a competitor to us who, near the start of COVID, said, Chaz, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. And you and I don't feel that way, do we? No, we don't. Um, and, and it's interesting. What does shooting fish in a barrel really mean? Does that mean that there are there's tons of supply, lots of businesses available? Does it is it an implication about their expectations on forward returns? Well, I think that's clearly one of the biggest issues that is uh, unspeakable, not something that you will likely ever read about in the media, which is kind of the notion of the balance between what uh, this kind of higher end pricing dynamic that has really swept the industry over the last few years. And having been doing this for about 35 years, I can confirm that this is certainly kind of the highest pricing, both on average and top tick pricing as multiples of EBITDA, upfront consideration and total consideration paid. It is clearly feels very toppy. Now, but the other side of the coin, as you say, Brad, is so all of these deals that have been announced with great fanfare, how will they pan out? Not just for the from the return perspective of the buyer, but how will they pan out five plus years from now? Will both sides be happy? Will both sides feel that they this was a an investment and an acquisition well worth doing? It's been productive, it's been accretive, uh, it's met their return expectations. What do you think? Well, I, I, I think that's a great point. The Early in the year, I think we saw headlines every day, multiple headlines on acquisitions at pretty staggering headline valuations 
not that they're always realized, but you know, the ones that get posted tend to catch your eyes and, and perhaps they were based on unrealistic expectations. So you had low rate, uh, low rate debt available. You had, mm -hmm. you know, extrapolation of pretty heady market returns. And so it was pretty easy to do math and see how you could generate a great return. And it feels that deal activity has slowed somewhat as the market has pulled back as rates have risen. Um, and so I think we see fewer deals, fewer headline deals. There's still some strategics getting done. There's still some PE buyers who want to get their piece of the puzzle. Maybe they were second or third in line while the prolific deal makers were chugging along. And now that they've slowed down, that's created room for others at the table. Um, and I think there are a lot of smaller firms on the wealth management side that continue to look for a permanent home as they're thinking about succession issues or trying to gain scale and be part of something bigger because they're tired of doing the heavy lifting of running a business. But overall, it feels like there's been a little bit of a rationalization in expectations and that the activity is a little more measured here as we as we exit yeah. the year. And make no mistake, I think we both believe that for a wide number of smaller and mid-sized, although that's a completely pejorative term, but for firms that don't have good built-in succession, who don't have a G2 really ready to take the helm, where the valuation internally has run away from the successor's ability to pay any reasonable price to the founders and primary owners at the time. There's good reason for a lot of this deal activity. There's, it's great to read announcements, and it's interesting. It's almost like going shopping. You know, you're so excited to see what you might buy at Christmas, and just the act of shopping in itself, I think, is is uh, is met with a lot of enthusiasm by some, not by all. And then you buy the gift and somebody receives the gift and months later, you need to remember what you bought. And I think, unfortunately, it's not an exact parallel, but I think given our experience, Brad, not trying to be a downer at all, but a lot of M&A ends up on the cutting board floor. Subsequent acquisitions by the same acquires might compromise earlier acquisitions, acquisitions that, as you underscored earlier, don't meet financial returns. And look, look how a lot of these uh, recent deals will be coming out of the gate with regard to the kind of the market volatility and deterioration over the last year plus. These are tough times for acquirers to, I think, make thoughtful, reasonable return projected deals. And yet what you and I think, Brad, isn't going to slow down the market one iota. Well, I, I want to pick up on your Christmas shopping analogy. Um, <laughs> some might say Rosemont's very good at window shopping because we don't buy a lot. Um, we don't fill our shopping bags um, indiscriminately. D do you think that changes now with the market having changed? You know, you're, you're not necessarily seeing valuations as high as they were. Maybe it is more of a buyer's market. Does that lead itself to more volume here? I don't think it is yet. I, I would like to think that, but I think that it's still very much a seller's market. I think there are still plenty of strong double-digit multiple of EBITDA deals being done and are just around the corner. I think more consideration is being put to either true up reconciliation or back-end payments. And again, that's the unanswered question. How will these deals ultimately pan out when measured even a few years from now? in terms of the uh, market action that we'll see, in terms of the net flow numbers that will pan out. It's just, there's a lot of questions. So 
I think one thing, Brad, that, that you kind of pointed out earlier is that kind of to the Howard Marx's point, from what I understand, Howard had recently suggested that interest rates might not recover for 10 years or more and might stay roughly where they are now. And if that's the case, then all of the debt-oriented buyers are going to be challenged. We have never been that. And we have, as you and I know, very little leverage in anything. I'm looking forward to seeing how a number of the headline deals pan out and just kind of looking at the asset bases and senior management and whether or not some of the more notable acquisitions of the last couple of years, this year especially, are strong and uh, doing very well in another couple of years. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty heading into next year, to your point. Will the market rebound? Won't it? How will seller expectations change as they perhaps recalibrate to a new normal with an adjustment in their AUM base or, or other factors? So there's a lot to watch. And of course, we'll be right there in the thick of it. I, I want to pivot to the businesses themselves and what our thoughts might be around how people should react to the environment and make adjustments internally. I think we wrote a while back before the market pulled back, probably, I don't know, two or three years ago, a piece called Battening Down the Hatches and how managers should be taking proactive steps to prepare for the inevitable downturn. I don't think any of us are surprised that the market pulled back. We didn't know when or how much, but you knew it was coming. We had been at the end of a long bull market. Um, what should managers be doing now and management teams of, of investment businesses Given the down market, the uncertainty that we just referenced, the rising rates, the all all of that, what should people be thinking about? Yeah, I think the first thing they should be thinking about is being very careful about their fixed expenses. Fixed versus variable expense has always been a kind of a major issue in whether it's an employee-owned or an institutionally uh, or third-party-owned business. That's kind of key to understanding how you're going to model out 10, 20, potentially 30% declines, which we've seen that and more from a number of firms. I think if you look at kind of the conditions of a number of firms relative to their bottom line and their EBITDA margins, if firms have 20, 25, 30% margin, that provides some buffer to withstand some of the volatility and downturn that we've seen. But when you don't have that, now a whole other assortment of questions are asked. And the flip side of what you're really asking, Brad, is how does this affect reinvestment? And for a number of firms, there are significant reinvestment plans, new products, new markets, new teams, acquisitions, et cetera. And I think the environment makes that very difficult for firms that are either running close to the edge margin-wise or secondarily, something that you and I have a lot of experience with, where compensation expectations start running too high. Yes, I, that that was where I was headed. If I'm running an investment management business, I'm looking at my P&L. Okay, there are a few lines that move around and I, you know, travel might be one of them, travel expense, which might be down through COVID and now it's coming back and I have to think about maybe corporate policy around travel. But the big one, the big item on the P&L is people in our business. People drive the majority of costs. So how do I think about attracting and retaining talent at a time when my revenues are down because my AUM is down, people are perhaps expecting more compensation than, I, than ever. How do I rationalize those two? Yeah, it, it's a key question, especially in this environment. And I think the primary answer has to be, if you don't own direct equity, if this is not an employee-owned business, and if it's a multi-hundred billion or 
multi-trillion dollar business, as a few are, uh, the question is actually even more interesting, but I think it's got to be some form of phantom equity, synthetic equity, but some share of value creation by those who are creating it. And that is missing from a lot of places. I just don't think in this business, last I checked, I think turnover and key investment and marketing positions averages something like three to five years. I think if you have value sharing plans or phantom equity plans, but some ability for people to share in the upside and the wealth that's created, that's going to be key relative to battening down the hatches with their fixed expenses in environments like this. We always preach the importance of having everybody aligned and rowing in the same direction. And that mercenary mentality is not good. How many firms have we seen where one of the key problems in their execution has been people are pulling in different directions? Well, not only that, as you know, there's a number of firms that we've seen and, and, and that do business under very high, let's call it, if not fixed, expected compensation structures. So it becomes a very challenging thing to deal with investment folk, wealth management, advisory people, marketing folks that are constantly expecting to make more money because there is competition that will pay them. There are recruiters that are offering them better paying jobs. It's actually one of the somewhat amusing things that you and I have seen when we talk about kind of the competitive worth of a position, talking about one of our firms and trying to help them hire somebody. You will never hear the low end of the pay range for such a position. You will typically, when asking advice and what position needs to be paid, you'll hear the higher end. And I think that just works against really good fiscal management of a business and being able to run a firm through tough times is keeping variable pay and upside truly that and not kind of have this rising bar every year because the competition dictates it. Okay. Okay. I get the point. It's your <laughs> end. You don't want to hear it from me about how much, <laughs> how much more comp I need next year. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it, hey, it, it, we it have does... a great phantom equity plan that uh, we designed that we think is really very thoughtful. And the key is it's designed to reward you and others over a long period of time. I think that's the other thing that you've seen, Brad. You saw it at your days, I'm sure, at SCI. But people that get very focused on annual pay, annual measurements, well, this year was a tough year. Well, how did you do kind of the last three years and in the context of your firm? On the topic of compensation, thinking about expectations and firms that have dreams of, or teams that have dreams of running their own shop, pulling out and being independent, going to another firm, taking their franchise somewhere. We talked to a lot of subscale businesses, small mm -hmm. you know, teams that want to make a go of it on their own. And they're starting out and ask for our help in, in how to do that or ask us to back them in that effort. And compensation is often one of the areas that is a sticking point. You know, you have to give something up to take that risk. Can you talk a little bit about what we see and, and what we tell people with respect to starting a small franchise in the investment business today? It's not easy. I think it's incredibly difficult. I think it's one of the toughest times in my career. And I think we are actually giving good advice to many such folks by telling them that they might be better off not doing that and trying to start their own firm from scratch, but rather joining another proven boutique that has the resources, has the bid and back office, and has kind of proven that they can withstand um, commercial scrutiny. And I think, Brad, that's one of the biggest things you and I see. Are such businesses, are you really backing a person or a company? And that's that's actually a very pivotal issue, both for us and I think 
for allocators. Now, allocators are clearly in a, in a very different position because if things don't go quite as planned, they can let them go relatively easily. We can't. Right, right. And it is, as you say, it's it's more than compensation. It's building a true company. And that can be difficult when you don't have a lot of revenue to cover fixed costs and leads to questions around insourcing versus outsourcing. Um, but one of the things that we always say is you need to have a balanced business with senior representation from all the important business functions. It's not just a matter of having a great investment team and a track record that will draw interest and assets. You need to have senior level, partner level, sales and marketing, operations oversight, and present yourself to the market as a real business. No doubt. In addition to having an outstanding investment engine, which I think you and I both believe that in today's institutional investment environment, um, that is more important than ever. I think that 30, 40 years ago, in my early days, you could be a very mediocre investor and still have a 40% plus margin business. And it might have been a lifestyle business that was uh, driven by the interests of one or two people. But today, I think there is much more pressure. There's almost this kind of vice-like environment in terms of the competition, which is ubiquitous and fierce, in terms of uh, the challenge of flows. And flows can be enormous, but for many folks, especially this year and the last couple of years, net flows are negative. They are episodic. They come from perhaps one channel that is somewhat fragile or from a particular gatekeeper or allocator that may dry up. So kind of having breadth in flows and having quality relationships across a number of different segments, that's really, really hard. Well, and it speaks to the importance of knowing where you are on the demand dartboard as well. You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, those in large cap U.S. equity may not be able to differentiate themselves and attract assets as well as somebody in a specialized capacity constrained and unique skill set type of area. So just being realistic about your expectations, given where you're playing in the market. You know, Brad, I would agree with that. But one thing you and I have seen this year that, that makes a slightly different point on that is that core fixed income, core plus fixed income, short term, short duration businesses, some of them are having a field day. And one might say that those businesses are easily commoditized. And there are plenty of multi-hundred billion dollar plus competitors that should be eating the smaller boutiques lunch. But we both know there are a number of boutiques that have had banner years in those seemingly commoditized classes. Well-run business can make a go of it. Well, that's another point. Don't leave that one before you get off this topic, which is just management and leadership. You know, it's a topic that our friends at Focus Consulting Group have talked about for a long time, and some firms do it really well. And you and I know that that's absolutely paramount to a Rosemont investment is high quality leadership and a thoughtful management team and a well-run board, et cetera. That has been left as an afterthought and or is, it's not a topic that seems to be regarded as important for a lot of folks that we know. No doubt. And that can be very important as you navigate difficult issues in the industry and cross currents that can show up at just the wrong time or, or cause friction in your business. I'm thinking of ESG and what we've seen yeah. this year. It seemed over the past couple of years that there was a huge tailwind developing. Everybody was rushing to launch ESG products and develop their ESG methodologies and, and really get their bearings in that. And this year, it's ironic. We made an investment in Veris Wealth Partners early this year, which is a, a great ESG impact wealth management firm. And over the course of this year, we've seen some 
headlines critical of ESG and potentially introducing some friction on both the political and regulatory side. So what observations do you have about an area like that, that would seem to be something we can all agree on, but yeah. that encounters some counterforces at times? Yeah, I think actually, Brad, there's two different uh, issues at work here. The way I see it is there are mission-driven investors and there are return-driven investors. Not to say that mission-driven investors can't earn excellent returns, but what Veris does is, is very, very different from what the states of Louisiana, Missouri, Florida, and others that have been in the headlines for politicizing the ESG and impact environment, and obviously BlackRock's been on the hot seat and, and others, no doubt. I think the difference really could be summed up by uh, those allocators and clients for whom specific ESG and impact issues are the driving force in what they're trying to accomplish with their investments, which are often what the families and foundations that Veris deals with are. That's how they think. That's, that's their DNA versus what is happening in mainstream corporate America, where I think it's just a lot harder to think that way. And I think that's where the industry is getting tangled up. It's, it's this whole notion of, but, but let's go back to your investment policy and, and your orientation as an allocator or as a research group. And I think it's very, very different uh, what's happening in corporate America than what is being driven by families, foundations, charities, and others for whom the specific ESG and impact orientation of the investments is the key. Maybe suitability is a good word to think about here, is not all investments are appropriate to everyone. You have certain parts of the economy for whom maybe green products, green-oriented products are not appropriate or are counterproductive to their day-to-day -day, uh, missions as leaders and politicians in, in their jurisdictions. So it may not be appropriate for BlackRock to sell ESG into every area. And when we see pushback from areas like Missouri or Louisiana or Florida, it can have economic implications. It can have uh, political implications in terms of conservative versus liberal agendas. It's complicated. And I think you make a good point in that if the audience wants it, it's great. And perhaps we can think that as we go forward, more of the, the investment consumers will want it, but it doesn't mean that everybody wants it today or can do it today. And, and that raises another issue on my mind, which is the regulatory concerns. Mm -hmm. It seemed when ESG was doing well, and I define doing well as both returns, whether mm -hmm. they were due to ESG factors or coincident factors, and in terms of selling product that everybody piled on and started slapping ESG on their on their products. And the SEC has pushed back on that and has pushed truth and labeling initiatives. You know, yeah. and maybe that's that's a point. We just need to be more accurate in terms of what we're calling things so that consumers can pick the things that are right for them. Yeah, but I think, Brad, you're making a good distinction, which is you're really separating how investors and research groups and allocators look at products and funds and strategies, which is a big part of it, versus orientation, orientation of investors and those whose orientation is not return first. That just that statement by and of itself seems incredibly foreign and absurd to most capitalistic oriented businesses that return must be first and nothing should be compromised in pursuit of return. But, you know, Brad, it's interesting to see how the whole ESG impact story has evolved. When I got started, it was groups like Calvert and Rockefeller and Paxworld. And these people were not being accused of 
uh, just launching businesses with ESG factors or greenwashing product. It was DNA. It was how they were created. It was what they were in business to provide their clients. Now it's mushroomed into, as you say, kind of this whole association of product comparison and whether or not people are being compromised and returns are being diminished. It's not, that's not the question for, for some investors. It is for others. So I, I just go back to orientation. Well, that's, I think, what we found so appealing in Veris is that authenticity and mm -hmm. the DNA. And they're not for everyone, but for those who care about such things, they are clearly one of the best. No doubt. Yeah. Well, let's let's look towards wrapping up. I want to move towards just quick comments on some of the lightning rod issues in mm -hmm. the industry today and get your thoughts, quick hit thoughts on a couple of things. All right. So let's start with the market. Everybody likes to talk about the market. Where do you think we go? What's going to happen with the market? I'm a little glass half empty, but that's just because I'm, I'm maybe a little more cautious uh, and, and have lived through enough cycles. I mean, look, S&P was up 28.7% last year. Basically, it's annualized at 15% over the last decade. But if you go to the last decade of the OOs, it um, compounded at 1.4%. Mm. Ton of volatility. Just imagine what those returns did to investment businesses over long enough periods of time that it had major, major effects. You had the run up, the run town. I mean, I think one thing's for sure is that volatility management should probably be core to any commercial investor's portfolio because I don't think we're out of volatility. I'm, I am no seer and have no forecast. I just think that volatile markets uh, are likely to stay and we're not out of the woods by any means with regard to uh, returning to smoother kind of, what would you call it, normalized listed equity return profiles. Markets don't go up 10% every year like clockwork? I mean, that's what I have in my model. I know. <laughs> so. and, and that's just the issue. And, and the other point to modeling relative to markets, Brad, is so whoever models negative numbers, you might model smaller growth rates. Oh, we're not going to grow at 12%. Let's put in six. All right, we'll do an incredibly conservative forecast. Let's just do our cagers at three or three to 5%. Not, let's throw in a negative 10 or 20% year. You and I know a number of firms that have gone from 10 to 6 billion this year, 20 billion to 12 billion, 5 billion to two and a half billion. I mean, it's, you know, we've talked about how that's a challenge. Now, look, I think for all the people that are struggling, I think a lot of people think, well, hey, we've done well. We are competitively well set. Uh, we performed much better than our competition. Hopefully the floodgate of flows will be open to us here over the next few years. But I think it's that combination of how market action and flows conspire for very differentiable outcomes. You and I see that a lot. Speaking of differentiable outcomes, a topic that's near and dear to your heart. What are you doing with your crypto investments, Chaz? <laughs> Anybody that knows me knows that you will never see crypto in my portfolio. I got to admit, I'm a little bit of the Charlie Munger thesis. And I think he said, it's a malicious combination of fraud and delusion. So sorry, all you folks. It's not that I don't believe that blockchain has a clear place in the world, but one of the things as investors, and I think you know, we and Markel stand side by side in this, Brad, is just not being speculators, not betting on things that we think will have some incredibly 
electric, world-changing place in the asset allocation spectrum, but betting on businesses that we think have some significant proof statement. And that could mean that we will always have a little bit of backward-looking bias, and perhaps we will not foresee the future nearly as well as others. And I guess I'm okay with that. You? Oh, I'm, I'm good with that too. I think that speaks to the long-term perspective and durability of returns and and all the things that make our partner Markel a great company and and becoming one of the world's great companies. And, and that's, we're trying to play a small part in that. Um, so note to self, sell the crypto. Um, <laughs> you don't have to, it's been sold for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about DEI? We've touched on ESG, yeah. but let's talk a little bit about DEI within the investment business and thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think it's a major topic. It's become a very important topic. We have backed a number of woman-led and minority-owned businesses, and I think it's something that we're aware of and are constantly looking at. I think it is important for this industry to continue to diversify from what has been a predominantly white male-oriented business over the last 50 years, which is kind of the, the wingspan of the uh, institutional and, and wealth management industries. But change is incremental, and uh, I, I would like us to continue to look hard at this question and do our part. I mean, I have twin daughters, one who's in the business uh, indirectly. You have daughters. And I just think it's something that, you know, from that perspective, uh, is something that we want to continue to shine a pretty bright light on. Absolutely. I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine in the industry who is a partner at a pretty good sized investment firm, asset management firm. And she made the point that they are trying to improve their own internal diversity metrics uh, and promote more women within. But you, it's very hard to find senior level women who are ready to, ready to go in that role. And so yeah. she's conscious that over promoting people just to get the numbers is a is a hazard. Doesn't do the business favors. It doesn't do the people who get promoted any favors when they're too no. far over their skis. But it is really important that we get there. And her her point was, you know, organic development of talent is huge. And so, you know, trying to encourage women and uh, minorities to get in the business, supporting them while they're there, helping develop them, and um, and giving them opportunities is really really important. And I think the industry is making progress. Um, but I, but if we focus too much on the headline metrics and not enough on the actual substance of the development and, and inclusion, that's a challenge. Can I add something to that, Brad? Just you made me think about in the topics as they were strung together, both of DEI and of crypto, and perhaps volatility management or kind of what defensive posturing folks uh, will have having lived through the last couple of years. One of the things that strikes you and me often is just the incredible diversity of clientele in this business. I think that's something that every manager's got to think hard about. So whether or not you're managing money for Kentucky State teachers or the Lutheran Brotherhood or the MIT Endowment or the BNY Mellon Manager Research Group or a $250 million family office, they have incredibly different interests, incredibly different investment philosophies. And for them, some of these topics might be very near and dear to their heart. They're polarizing topics. And I think that just kind of speaks to why we have such an eclectic, broad-based industry of so many different types of competitors. And for that reason, I actually see, I, I don't see consolidation or I don't see an accordion-like environment of squeezing competitors relative to this wide, wide funnel 
of client segments and client interests, which are going to continue to demand uh, all these different things from firms. And that's why you'll continue to have folks of so many different shapes and sizes. That's what makes it all so great. Yep. Last topic I wanted to touch on uh, is cybersecurity. And beyond just our desire not to click on the phishing links that plague us <laughs> all the time, not to say that anyone on this conversation has done that. No, no, I certainly haven't. I've never. I'm a tech whiz, as you know, and very cautious. Yes, we <laughs> depend on you. You're our in-house IT department. Um, <laughs> just talk a little bit about that and how, how firms should be thinking about cybersecurity. I think um, as I kind of went back through my notes and thought about the year, Brad, I think there have been an unusual number of scams and fraud and phishing. And, you know, it's not going away. And I think there probably will be kind of more critical technology and expense and resource that has to be put to this. Um, I mean, I was just talking with one of our former investments yesterday who told me that they had gotten what looked like a real, but turned out to be a bogus request from a client to transition a significant amount of their portfolio, which was in short-term or cash, to their bank account and had the bank account numbers and had emails and other stats all right. And it, yet it just looked a little bit odd to the CEO who then took a closer look and the team called the client and said, no, I made no such request. So yeah, I think this is, uh, this is a huge issue which people need to spend more time and thought on. And I know one thing, and you know this about me, Brad, because you're way better at it, is all the passwords that are required, I don't know how people remember 50 plus passwords. <laughs> there have got to be people working on creating uh, a simpler and elegant password structure kind of with your core physical DNA. I can't believe that all of us are going to need to continue to remember 50 plus passwords. Well, that's why I just use the password password for everything. It works. <laughs> yeah, I never forget. I think there I think there are people working on those solutions, and and there are some out there. But I, I'm just upset because I think I've won thirty Yeti coolers in the last <laughs> month, and I haven't had one of them dropped off yet. It just I'm waiting for the shipments to arrive of all these Yeti coolers that I keep clicking on and giving my information for. You sure you're putting the right password? <laughs> No, I'm not. Well, this was fun. Thank you again yeah. for letting me take the wheel today. It was it was a fun conversation, um, and and I'm excited for what we have to come next year. And on that note, uh, I do want to mention that we're going to start off the year next year with a special series within Global Investment Leaders. I'm launching a subseries called How They Did It, where I'll be talking with industry practitioners about how they tackled specific problems and issues. And uh, looking forward to getting into the weeds on a lot of really relevant and interesting topics that I know people struggle with. So getting an insider's perspective on how people accomplished it. So that will come out next year, and I'm excited for that. And of course, we'll have more great episodes of the headline Global Investment Leaders with you interviewing industry luminaries and having insightful conversations about our industry. Now, I'm really glad you're doing this, Brad, and excited to see your first guest, Todd Vingers, who both you and I have known for a long time. So. That's going to be good. And, uh, you know, we're finally zeroing in on our next investment, which looks like a really high quality partnership between us and a uh, wealth management business that we have been getting to know over a long period of time. So lots to do. We'll keep ourselves busy. No doubt. No doubt. Knock on wood on that pending investment. And uh, happy holidays to you. And of course, to all of our listeners and a happy new year. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Brad. 